welcome to episode 1241 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jess Lundlin of Fangraphs. Hello. Hello. So my plan for today is to do kind of a normcore episode of this podcast. No talk about Williams Astadio and his origin story or any of the other strange stories that we get fixated on, unless they come up organically. Thought we could just talk about what Joe Baseball fan is talking about these days, namely the All-Star Game and the trade deadline. But is there anything that you wanted to get to before then? Well, based on that intro, I'm out. I'll uh, I'll be back Wednesday. There's no, there's no place for me here. Okay, so I did see something. This is just something that was retweeted by Tacoma Rainier's AAA announcer, Mike Curto. He, uh, he retweeted something from the, the account Minor League Stories. Anyway, on this day, this uh, referring to, I guess, Monday, July 9th, on this day in 1911, a state representative declared it Umpire Day in Washington, so the Tacoma Tigers showered an umpire with praise and flowers from the Eugene Guard. I will just read these two paragraphs from the newspaper. Tacoma observes first Umpire Day, official showered with roses and praise instead of abuse. Tacoma, Washington, July 12th. July 12th, I guess. For the first time in the history of baseball, an umpire day has been celebrated Sunday afternoon. 5,000 persons turned out to the ballpark to feet Fet? I guess I don't actually know which one it is. Feet? Fet? I think Fet. I would say Fet. Fet. <laughs> we'll go with Fet. Umpire Jake Baumgarten and show him that baseball can be played under conditions where the umpire is not even questioned. Baumgarten was showered with roses and a score or more mammoth bouquets were presented to him. Throughout the contest between Tacoma and Vancouver, nothing but words of commendation and praise were heard about the umpire. At the close of the game, Baumgarten took his station at the grandstand gate and presented roses to the women who had attended the game. How nice. Yeah, I thought so. (laughs) Yeah. How many umpires are there in that town that were able to benefit from this? Not that many. I mean, this is the entire state, I guess. Okay. Uh, (laughs) But other than that, how many teams were in Washington at that point? Well, good for Baumgartner. Baumgarten? Baumgarten, I guess. The type, I'm looking at this. This is a copy of an old newspaper. The type is not very clear. I'm not that bad of a reader. (laughs) Well, that's a nice idea. It'd be great if it could be more inclusive. Maybe every state can have an umpire appreciation day just so they can all feel the love because they've all felt the abuse over the years. Mm-hmm. The only other thing I think I have, but I would just point this out because I uh, I had noticed looking over the standings since we last talked. So just uh, picking an arbitrary date, we'll go with June 5th. Since June 5th, the Seattle Mariners are 19 and 12. They have been outscored by six runs. So for <laughs> I had seen many allusions to the idea that the Mariners run differential was misleading because they had been worse early in the season and no no they're just they're just <laughs> lucky all of the time so that is what's yep. going on with the Mariners they have the same record since June 5th as the Cleveland Indians who have outscored their opponents by 50 runs yeah it never stops you'd think once we noticed this it would immediately reverse itself and they'd start losing but instead no which makes you think well is there something to it is it real is it sustainable it has been sustained but doesn't seem sustainable so i don't know what's going on but it's a fun story i think people in your area are enjoying it when did we uh when did we first bring up the idea of a team winning fewer games and its manager is years old <laughs> it's, uh, it's a couple of weeks ago i think okay i'll just just to restate for the record ned yost will turn 64 in august buck showalter has already turned 62 and the royals are still stuck at 25 wins and the orioles are at 24 
I was looking over. I can't figure out the perfect like starting point to really drive home how terrible it's been for the Royals, but we can just go yeah. with, uh, I don't know, the end of May. So starting <laughs> on June 1st, the Royals have gone 5-28, and 28, and not even just 5-28. and 28, Their Pythagorean winning percentage, they've been outscored by 107 runs since then. Their mm-hmm. Pythagorean winning percentage since then is 175. The <laughs> second worst is 318 in baseball. 175. I've never seen a Pythagorean record so bad. Over like a fifth of the season, the Royals yeah. are so bad. We've played, we played the Marlins roster game, but do you know... The Royal starting rotation right now, because I am in charge of the depth charts at Fangraphs, and I don't. Is it Kaito Yuki, the 16-year-old <laughs> Japanese high school player that they signed this week? Because <laughs> probably be. should be. Yeah, I wanted to bring him up. I I want to learn more about that situation, but that is a pretty intriguing signing. The Royals, I think, became the first major league club to sign a Japanese high school player, again, Kaito Yuki, and he signed to a minor league deal like any other domestic minor league player. It's a $322,500 signing bonus, and he is thought to be, according to the AP, the first Japanese junior high school player to sign with a major league club which is pretty interesting because usually to sign with a major league club as a Japanese player, you have to have been a professional for years and years before you can finally be posted or persuade your team to post you. And Yuki is just entirely circumventing that system, and he is bypassing the end of his high school career, which is apparently legal and permissible. And uh, apparently there was some kind of connection where the Royals International Scout, their Pacific Rim coordinator, was an advisor for his Little League club. So there was a connection there, and he felt comfortable doing this. And I know there have been players in Japan who've considered doing this before, but I don't think anyone has, at least to my knowledge. And I don't know whether this will start a trend. It would be pretty fascinating if it did, but I can't imagine that that many players are willing to do this at that age. He's 16 years old. That is tough. That is obviously what a lot of players in Latin America do just as a a routine, as a matter of course, but this is not typical for Japan. So I wonder whether it will be a a trend-setting signing. Yeah, I didn't get very much of a chance to read about this. I was I was gone all weekend. I remember that a few years ago there was that kerfuffle over the Orioles, sort of like illicitly right. scouting a number of what was it, Taiwanese players or, or I Korean, think so. somewhere on the Pacific Rim. The Orioles yes. were scouting very young players. I know that like Shinsu Chu just wound up in the Mariners' farm system. He didn't, I don't think, play professionally in Korea, but mm-hmm. yeah, it was Korea that the the Orioles scouts were banned from. Okay, and I, I don't remember all of the circumstances there. That was complicated, and I don't know if they're allowed to return. We should talk to some people over there because mm-hmm. they would know a lot more than we would off the top of our head. But I do wonder if you were the Royals, if you have to uh, scout far-off teenagers because that way you might find people who are unaware of how bad you've become. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think in Korea, there was a rule against the unrestricted signing of amateur players by foreign clubs. I don't know if it was an enforceable or legal rule, but it was a rule. And I don't think there's an actual rule in NPB. Maybe there was an unwritten rule to a, a certain degree. But anyway, it's a, a lot to ask of a player to come over here and not know the language and be 16 and have to face this kind of competition. But obviously, lots of international players have to do this. And he is 6'2", and he has already been clocked in the high 80s. So he is a pretty impressive pitcher, apparently, and maybe it will catch on. I don't know. I also 
also uh, wanted to mention there's a Royals fun fact that I was going to save for the email show, but (laughs) since you brought up how bad the Royals are and since it's timely now, I'll read it. This came from an email from listener Luke who says, I was pulling up the box score from the recently finished 15-4 to route of the Red Sox over the Royals and noticed an oddity. Every single player who batted for the Red Sox had at least one run batted in, and there were 11 batters. And Luke continues, I assume that this has happened before, but I can't recall ever seeing another box score like it. How often does this occur? What's the highest number of batters a team has sent up where all of them had runs batted in? I'm curious as to whether this is a noteworthy accomplishment or not. So I sent this to Dan Hirsch, as always, of the Baseball Gauge, and he was able to research this, and he said, Nice eye by Luke, because this looks to be the record for the years in which we have data. I only counted players that had a plate appearance in the game, so some top teams had a defensive replacement that didn't reach the plate. Also, I didn't include any games that were missing run batted in data. But, yeah, it is the only game on record where every batter who had a plate appearance for a team had a run batted in and that many batters batted. I probably said that in a very convoluted way, but (laughs) it's it's the only time that a team has had 11 batters in a game and all of them have driven in a run. The previous high was 10, which had happened a few times in the past, but... This is unprecedented, and so it's uh, yet another example of the Royals being terrible. We talked about their own offensive futility recently, but now they are also inflating their opponents' offensive stats. There were, by the way, some other games that did have 11 different players drive in a run. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't every player in those games that had a plate appearance, and there were three games that had 12 players drive in a run and uh, one of them was an Orioles game back in 1955 and then there was a 1948 and a 1912 so this is rare and unprecedented if you define it sort of narrowly so Royals are bad teams that play the Royals are good I can't believe how bad the Royals are and I feel like they're so bad this is it's really fortunate for the Orioles and the Royals that I, maybe we already mentioned this, but that they're doing this at the same time because this is like really <laughs> and and how much better is this for the White Sox who have been a catastrophe? There, I mean, yeah. you might remember when we were talking to Jason Benetti during the the season previous, he he thought that I forgot his exact number, but he thought they would be pretty close to to five hundred. Mm-hmm. And instead of being close to five hundred, they do have fifty percent more losses than wins right now. Or I should say, <laughs> nope, that's wrong. A hundred percent more losses than wins. It's double. <laughs> the number 30 and 60 but you have a team like the White Sox who's been so disastrous but then you also have the Orioles who've who had the worst first impression because they were so bad Mm -hmm. in in April and then the Royals have really come on strong to take over the worst team in baseball mantle but the the fact that there are just these teams all doing at the same time I think in a way sort of alleviates the burden on all of them because it's it's almost it's hard to keep your attention focused on how bad one of them is when you can yeah. just kind of like look for a fun fact about the other one. The Orioles are 37 games out of first place. <laughs> yeah, whenever you're doing something embarrassing or shameful, it's less embarrassing and shameful when other people around you are doing the same thing and you just kind of blend into the crowd of people who are doing something embarrassing. So yeah, it's nice for them to have company and not be alone in their historic awfulness. It is strange that they are this bad. I wonder whether it has to do with just how good the good teams in the ALR this year, because it's not like, I mean, when I look at the Orioles and Royals, 
We expected them to be bad. It's not surprising that they're bad, but it hasn't been that long since they were good or at least competent. And it's not like they've done the most, you know, strip it down to the studs kind of rebuild, tear down, tank, whatever you want to call it. Like the Royals just kind of aged out of their core and they lost a bunch of free agents. And that's what happens. And the Orioles just have done a really bad job of acquiring and developing talent. And so this is what happens. But I didn't really foresee either of them being one of the worst teams ever this year. So maybe that just has to do with how stratified the AL is right now. Yeah, and it doesn't really help when you have Danny Duffy who turn into a problem and Alex Gordon had that brief little flit of yeah. looking interesting earlier in the season. But I really don't want to go over the Royals bit by bit. We They do mm-hmm. have an all-star. Everyone has an all-star. They have an all-star we can talk about. But even their all-star is bad, which is the mark of a, a bad team. But yeah, I know that during the offseason, you go get Lucas Duda, John Jay, they resign Mike Misakis, and you think, well, at least they're trying, right? At least they're not they're not tanking. They're spending a little bit of money putting some veterans around the core. If there is a core, mm-hmm. it turns out there is no core. Alcides Escobar <laughs> just had his play every single day streak end, but it, looking at his numbers, that streak should have ended like a year ago, <laughs> maybe yeah. before it began. I don't know. I don't know how much it matters. I don't know how much it matters for the Royals to have dropped so deep because we all know it's going to be a long time before they return. So maybe it doesn't matter to them if they lose 100 or 110 or 120, but it's wow, it's going to be a long time. Mm -hmm. By the way, it's pronounced either fate or fet. Evidently, both are acceptable. I'm going to go with fet because fate is a word and fet is just a bounty hunter so i'm going with fet you can't say feet i guess feet is probably not permissible that is already a a different word okay so i got my first pronunciation was not correct either way so i went (laughs) there were two options i went for the incorrect number three it's fet but there was no little diacritic over the e so i was thrown off yeah All right, so you were just joking. I know it wasn't really a joke, but I'm going to say it was a joke about taking the rest of this episode off because we're talking about the All-Star Game and the trade deadline. I know it's not really our brand. We're the people who talk about the, the weird, whimsical aspects of baseball, but we also talk about the big news and the current events. We try to do a little bit of something for everyone. So right now, these are the big topics in baseball, and I have a few things to say about them. So I think that we have all kind of fallen into the rut of bashing the All-Star game and saying that we don't really care about the All-Star game. And there are good reasons not to care about the All-Star game. There's just no intrigue to the idea of players from opposing leagues facing each other because opposing leagues oppose each other every day of the season. We have MLB TV. We can watch these guys whenever we want. There isn't really much of a rivalry when it comes to AL versus NL anymore. And the whole thing is sort of silly and meaningless. And even MLB is not pretending that there is any meaning or significance here. There's no this time it counts. And that's fine. So I'm not excited for the All-Star game. I don't wish any ill upon the All-Star game. I don't dislike it or wish it would go away. I think it's more entertaining than no baseball and probably more entertaining than most baseball games in the middle of July. It's fine. You get to see the best players in baseball and also Joe Jimenez face each other, and that's great. And you get to see them hang out on the field, and there's kind of a social aspect to it that is enjoyable. 
there's no other game really unless, I don't know, the Yankees are playing the Astros where it's like every single matchup is pretty compelling. So I'm fine with the All-Star game, even though it's not as intriguing as it once was and there's no way to make it as intriguing. And everyone talks about how do we fix the All-Star game? How do we save the All-Star game? There's no way to do it. I think there are things you could do that would make it more entertaining at this point. I would definitely rather see, you know, U.S. versus the world or young players versus old players or some other distinction between these teams other than AL versus NL. I think that would make me at least marginally more excited than I am. But whatever. All-Star Game's fun. I'm not here to be a John Smoltz about it and tell you how terrible it is. So that's fine. But this is the week when everyone talks about snubs and you've got to talk about snubs and who should have been on the team and who isn't on the team and why. And it's always sort of a silly debate because, for one thing, by the time they actually play the All-Star game, everyone is on the All-Star team. (laughs) (laughs) Like, we're still a week away or whatever it is, and there's almost no point in saying that this guy should be on the roster or that guy should be on the roster because he will be by the time they actually play the thing. Guys will have been scratched. They will have pulled themselves out of the team. You'll have replacements and reserves, and it'll be fine. Almost everyone who deserves to be there should be there, and that's fine. And there's just no perfect system, I don't think, for electing All-Stars because, for one thing, there's just no agreed-upon definition of what an All-Star is. To the extent that you care, and I know that's not a great extent, How would you define an all-star? Are you in the, it says stars, so we put the stars in the game camp, or are you in the, it's a celebration of the players who are currently having the best season, so if you have a great first half, you should be in the game camp. I get torn, and if you ask me on a different day, I'm going to have a different answer, because I think, I I like the idea that the rosters would be more prone to changing year to year because if you're talking yeah. about stars then it legitimately is just a popularity contest and it's not completely divorced from production but i mean you you look at the fans and i don't know maybe the fans lead the way here and maybe they're showing us exactly what should be happening and what wilson ramos i think led american league catchers in votes right i i'm not i'm not gonna lie to you i have yeah. not looked at anything that has to do with the all-star voting results aside from what i couldn't yeah. avoid on twitter but mm-hmm. i remember at least seeing that wilson ramos was leading in in votes at catcher and i don't know how that would happen because he plays for the rays and he's not gary sanchez so it's a little confusing to me but the the fans have at least indicated that they do care about production the the fan voting has through the lens of thinking about in-season production the fan voting has seemingly improved over the last several years as as fans become more and more aware of of what the numbers are Anyway, to get back to the point, I do think that there should be a a significant influence from from current performance, but you can't just have it be all like the best players from the first half because while that still is a reward, part of what I think is the reward of going to the All-Star game is that as a player, if you're selected, you've been selected to hang out with the actual quote-unquote stars. You've been selected to be among them. Say what you will about Joe Jimenez. And by the way, I'll, I'll just point out, Joe Jimenez this season has allowed a WOBA of 267. He's an all-star. Salvador Perez has hit for a WOBA good. of 273. He's also an all-star. So way to go, Joe Jimenez. You've turned every opponent into an all-star, I guess. I don't know how. Well, that's not very flattering. Anyway, Salvador Perez has been bad. Joe Jimenez has been good. Mm-hmm. So I guess if you wanted to compromise, I sort of like to think of it as my all-stars would be who's been the best mostly of like over like the past calendar year. 
So mm-hmm. that sort of, I think that works as uh, sort of folding in both the true talent star level and also the uh, the who's been really, really good in the first half. But I don't think I would want an all-star game where someone like Max Muncy's weird-ass performance this year wouldn't get selected. Right. I think that something right. like that needs to go in. I don't yeah. care. I know I know people talk about Brian LaHare that one year, but I don't care. Mm-hmm. That's fun. I like that <laughs> that happened. He does, well, he probably deserved it. I don't remember the case offhand. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Brian LaHare, he's the, the quintessential example of the why was that guy an all-star. But I think he had some ridiculously high BABIP that first half. And of course, his career was basically like one full season in total. And, you know, you look back and it's, yeah, why is Brian LaHare there? I'm sure no one was super excited to see Brian LaHare there except Brian LaHare's friends and family. And so I used to be more of a hardliner about this. And I'd think that if you had a good first half, you should be an all-star. And it was all about, you know, I wasn't thinking of it in wins above replacement terms then, but nowadays, if you just looked at a first half wins above replacement leaderboard and just averaged the wars or whatever you want to do and just took the top people, that would be the most fair way to do it. And in a sense it is, but I think it's a marketing event. It's a publicity event. You want the stars in the All-Star game. There is some logic to that. I think it's just a a way to promote the game. And the best way to do that is to have the famous players everyone knows in this event. And I agree, it should be a blend because you don't just want everyone kind of grandfathered in so that it's exactly the same names and faces year in and year out. I think it's great if you have some guys who are there every year, but it's nice to have some new blood too. And I wouldn't want someone who is skilled and also clearly performing better to be banned from this game because he's a rookie or he's a fluke or he's coming out of nowhere. I guess we could make a distinction for flukes. Like if you look at someone who's just got some massive ERA FIP gap or some sky-high BABIP and you just know he's not actually good, but he's just had some good results this year, I'm not going to pound the desk for that guy, really. But if you've been legitimately good, and this is the first time you've been legitimately good, I think you deserve to be in there. And it's a special thing for the player. And there can be contract incentives that are triggered when a guy gets in. And it's like a a lifelong thing. Like, players are described by, oh, he was a two-time All-Star, like, for the rest of his career, even if he wasn't that great a player. So I think there's something to that. And Guys who don't have the incredible history should get to go to the game. So I'm okay with that. Anyway, I just think that there's no way to make everyone happy with this because A, people disagree about what an all-star should look like. And then B, the system is just changing all the time. And you have these three different groups, I guess, that have some input here. So I haven't even really kept track of who is voting for what anymore. But I think the managers used to have a more prominent role and now they don't. The players have a very prominent role as of, what, last year maybe? And then there is the fan vote for the starters, and then there is the MLB final vote candidates who were kind of snuck in there. So if I can find, I think Travis Sachik has a post on this that will be up by the time you are hearing this. And so I think that fans vote on the starters Players select the 17 reserves and 16 in the NL, so players are taking more than half of the all-star spots, and then there are the starters that the fans are voting on, then the commissioner's office for the final vote, guys. And 
I don't know whether it's atypical or not, but there's been a big outcry from some of the players this year who are launching their own campaigns and criticizing some of their peers for voting in some guys or not voting in other guys. And yeah, it is sort of silly when you look and Sal Perez, who has just not been good, is an all-star and, you know, you name the snub is not or is not a starter. Everyone's mad about Blake Snell or Max Muncy, or Trey Turner, Brandon Belt, uh, Ross Stripling, Charlie Morton, Eddie Rosario. I mean, the list goes on and on. And again, most of these people will be all-stars by the time it's all said and done. But you have the need to have someone from every team on the roster which is always going to kind of compromise the integrity of the process and I'm fine with that because again it's a meaningless game and I know that when I was watching all-star games as a kid I was always sort of excited to see players from my team now I grew up as a Yankees fan so there's no shortage of players from my team but if you are a Tigers fan and you're Happy to see Joe Jimenez on the roster this year. That's great, and that's fine, and I think there should be someone there for everyone. But when you're going to give most of this process to players, you just have to be ready, I think, for them not to put that much thought or research into voting. Plus, apparently they're still voting by paper ballot and envelope like weeks ago. So Justin Verlander was tweeting, like, we vote way too early. He said we could easily punch in our votes on an iPad a couple days before instead of the old school envelope weeks before. And I've always thought it was silly to start all-star voting months ahead of time. But I guess there's probably a financial incentive for MLB there because the all-star vote is sponsored. And so they don't care if you vote 100 times for a guy because they probably get some money every time you click. Why would the players... I, like you said, there's the, the incentive, but I don't, I don't know why the players would be asked to vote so far in advance. Their all-star vote isn't sponsored. I don't I yeah. I don't know why they're doing it the way that they're doing either, but I mean, having now submitted a few Baseball Writers Association of America votes, I know that things in base, the voting is just a little backwards, or it's it's mm-hmm. uh, it's at least not cut up to where you think it would be. Ferdlander's right, of course, about the iPad. I don't think anyone would hack the vote, and even if they did, I don't know if anyone care. <laughs> I do wonder when we talk about this every single year, how much... You think of the people who who talk about the snubs and how things could be optimized or should be better, and I don't know if I don't know if any of those people are really who the All Star Game is is for. It seems like it's mm. it's mostly for the players and their families, and then the the people who used to feel alive inside, like you and I when we were kids. You know, not a not the the fully employed adults. It's the kids who just want to sit down and watch a baseball game, wait for their favorite players, and cheer mm-hmm. the players on the team, and then boo the players who aren't on the team or on the rivals. And and I remember enjoying All Star games. I remember enjoying home run derbies, and then I I grew out of it. I don't think that's anyone's fault. It's it's just not something that is produced there for me. Now I know that there is. The All-Star Game is not the only event that is, I think, geared toward uh, younger people. You can consider, uh, the, uh, for example, the, the Kids' Choice Awards, which is, by the way, not <laughs> run by kids. There's a, there's a mm-hmm. lot of adults who are in whatever room it is. I don't know. who. I shouldn't have started talking about the Kids' Choice Awards because I don't know anything about it. But you have a lot of adults who are making production decisions for a thing that ultimately is not for them. And so I think that's a, that's a little what this is. But I uh, at the end of the day here i am dissatisfied with the number with the weight given to player votes because i think every single player who plays major league baseball i'll step back many players who play major league baseball are very smart about baseball and could have a uh, a good insightful long conversation about the nuances of of their individual game and some of them mm-hmm. are very aware 
of the good players who play elsewhere. Some of them are huge baseball fans. They'll watch highlights. They'll go home and they'll watch games on off days. There's Zach Greinke who scouts freaking amateurs during spring training because <laughs> he just can't yeah. get enough of it. The guys like Zach Greinke or or Joey Votto are are rare. They are the exception, and so it's. It just comes, it's like the old gold glove voting that coaches would mm-hmm. do, where it's, you know, they would like delegate it to some other guy, or they would just write down a vote because they remember the play some guy made three years ago. Like, of course, Salvador yeah. Perez made the All Star game. How many people yeah. are paying him any attention or thinking, right. or paying and other Once you won anything? one gold glove, it seemed like you'd win every year until right. you were just totally lame and unable to move and that would be a good example of of why you you need to have fresh blood coming into the all-star game because if you have people grandfathered in obviously the gold gloves became very unpopular when it was the same people over and over and over again who didn't Mm -hmm. always deserve it now mark burley did always deserve it but he was special most players were not mark burley so Mm -hmm. i don't know why the players have been given so much power for an event that i i know that it is for them but I think that just like the Hall of Fame is players receiving an award because other people voted for them and, and saw their saw their ability and their uh, for their careers, I think that the other people should be voting for this. I don't know why players have a say at all. Certainly not such an outsized say. Let fans choose the backups or just find the players don't need to do it. I think the, the players <laughs> have abdicated their responsibility here. Yeah, they have better things to do really than look at leaderboards all day like we do because they're Major League Baseball players. So yeah, I think this is kind of what we do. We follow the game, we analyze the game, and players play their own game and optimize their own performance. And right, some of them pay attention and are very knowledgeable about the league and others aren't, but they are not employed for their ability to analyze the performance of other players. That's just not really in their job description. And obviously they have some idea, but you're always going to get some, I'll say bad picks and reputation-based picks. I mean, there's no great Royals all-star candidate this year. We were just talking (laughs) about the Royals. There's no budding MVP on that roster right now, but you could find better players than Sal Perez. You could find, I don't know, Whit Merrifield or someone would be a better all-star selection, I suppose, than Sal Perez. And you're not going to get Whit Merrifield chosen because the players know Sal Perez and he's been around and he's been in the game before and he's respected. And so that's the kind of selection you're going to get. And that's if you design the system this way, you're always going to get quote unquote snubs. And so it's really not worth getting upset about, I guess, unless you want to just get upset about the system itself and hmm. try to change that. But I don't know that it's important enough to devote that much of our mental energy to. What if what if we've talked about ways to spice it up and it's it's the skills competition, it should be the skills competition. We will continue to talk about that until they actually implement it. But what if they had they changed the All-Star game to have a team voted on by the fans against a team voted on by the players. Now, there would be mm. some overlap, you know, the obvious guys, and I don't know what you would do about those. Maybe you split them up or you put them on whichever team gave them the most support. I don't know. There's There are ways to narrow that down. But ultimately, the fans and the players would disagree on, presumably, a number of players because the players doing the voting don't care or wouldn't be putting a whole lot of thought into it. So it would probably end up being a little more of a... Uh, a young versus old, but not entirely kind of situation. And then you can have the fans or the players feeling kind of smug after every single result. And that that would be a little, I would be at least inclined to check the box score more than once every year. Yeah. If, uh, mm-hmm. if that were the format. 
Yeah. And I know that there was a new system that I think MLB wanted that the union rejected. Jill Sherman reported this in the Post in May, I think. So I'll quote from him here. MLB proposed essentially a primary system and a general election for the fan voting. There would be an initial wave of voting in the standard way with a player from each team represented at the position. Then around mid-June, there would be a cutoff and the top three vote getters at each position would be in a runoff starting from zero votes again with the winner starting at that position. The hope was that players would take to social media to push candidacies and that that would excite fans to further participate and then watch the game. And the union didn't want to do it because, gosh, I don't even know. I think, let's see, MLB made its initial proposal in early April with no additional compensation for the players before ultimately offering $1.1 million of inducements that would be spread among those who finished in the top three of voting, the participants in the Home Run Derby and the winning All-Star team. The union said it would only consider accepting if MLB agreed to not only the $1.1 million, but also an equal share of revenue derived from this new process. And also there wouldn't be a separate sponsorship for the voting, and so there would be less money coming in. Anyway, the union didn't like it, and so that was dead. And I don't know, I guess that would help in some degree, but still wouldn't take a lot of the power away from the players. So it wouldn't really be all that different, and we'd still get selections that people are upset about. So... That's that. I don't know what you do. I guess you you could just put the players on the back burner here and give more selections to the fans, but you'd still get some weird ones. And of course, you would get fan bases that just are better at mobilizing themselves, voting their own players in, as we saw with the Royals a few years ago. And as it seemed like we were seeing with the Braves this year, sort of. So that's always going to kind of compromise the process. Also, by the way, Congratulations to Nick Marcakis, who is officially an all-star. So good for him and bad for the fun fact in that he is no longer the best player ever to have never received an all-star selection or an MVP vote. And I, as much as I love or loved the uh, the dearly departed Nick Marcakis fun fact, I, I can't get my head around the fact that Matt Kemp is a, an all-star starter in this season. I know that this is, I mean, this isn't anything surprising, right? This has been coming on for yeah. for months. He, if, as mm-hmm. long as it hit, he was always going to be wildly popular in a gigantic baseball market. But just the very fact that Matt Kemp was completely and utterly unwanted as recently as four months ago, yep. he's an all-star starter. And he deserves it. That's just, I don't even know what to do with baseball anymore. I honestly don't. I can't. This, what, do, what do you think? What do you think? I know this deviates from the subject a little bit, but we're talking about Matt Kemp, so let's just keep talking about Matt Kemp. He's had a, an all-star first half. You look at baseball references, wins above replacement is 1.7. That's not great, but that's actually pretty good. Puts him on pace mm-hmm. for something like three. How many wins above replacement, positive or negative, do you think Matt Kemp will be worth in the second half? Or I should say from this point forward. Zero? <laughs> Roughly zero? <laughs> I also think zero. <laughs> What's his projection? I will uh, I'll pull that up right now. His projection is oh, it's 0.5. He's projected to be huh. a, uh, a comfortably above average hitter. And the defense is, well, it's it's not comfortably anything, but he is he's projected yeah. at 0.5. So according to fan graphs, he will end at 2.5 wins above replacement this season. Mm-hmm. And that trade was still just an accounting trade. It was still just an exchange of future money and present money. I don't care what actually ended up happening. I really don't think that even the teams involved foresaw any of this happening. I'm sure that the Dodgers are happy that they've gotten something out of Matt Kemp, but 
I don't think even they, with their powers of prognostication and player development, ever envisioned getting this sort of value out of him. No, absolutely not. There are there are things that happen in the game very often where if a player, if something happens to the player, then credit will immediately go to both the player and the team that he plays for. Like, yeah, I, I saw that you wrote about Lorenzo Cain, for example, over the over the weekend. Mm-hmm. A welcome yes. to the party, and Lorenzo yes, Cain has uh, has yeah. like doubled his uh, his his walk rate. He's become a lot more mm-hmm. disciplined. Now, what we what we know is that Lorenzo Cain has changed something meaningful about his approach, and he now plays for the Brewers. What we don't mm-hmm. actually know is what the connection is, if there's any. So, mm-hmm. uh, not to pinpoint Lorenzo Cain, it's just a, a recent example. Matt Camp being He's an the best all-star. example. It's relevant. Yeah, yeah, sure. We'll, just, we'll only talk about All-Stars and also maybe former All-Stars because, by the way, Jordan Zimmerman looks good again. We'll talk about that yeah. later. But mm. it's so easy to just say, well, this guy is on this team. He's doing well. This team deserves credit for seeing that. But that's it, just not how it always works. The teams love it when they get credit for things like that. But I think with Kemp, it was so transparent that even the Dodgers can't fake that they saw mm-hmm. this. I think maybe Dave Roberts could. You know, he's the on-field manager, and he saw... Matt Kemp firsthand when he would show up, he was in shape in spring training. Roberts is always the one offering these encouraging quotes. But I think even the Dodgers front office wouldn't be able to say, yeah, that wasn't uh, just moving money around trade. We definitely wanted the guy who's been a below replacement level player and just like a malcontent for the last three years. Even at the time, I don't think they pretended otherwise, right? I mean, they were pretty frank about what the purpose was and what the future or non-future of Kemp was with that team. So I don't think anyone was really under any illusions about what the plan was there. It's a it's a little like I saw over the weekend that the Rangers technically traded for Austin Jackson, but really just took on money for a prospect. And, uh, mm-hmm. and the Rangers have already said, you know, Austin, you probably shouldn't even bother reporting. We're going to try to do something else like you're not really a part of this team we're just taking your money and Mm -hmm. incidentally i wonder are we yet to the point where trades so for anyone who wasn't paying attention the the rangers made a trade with the giants where the rangers took on austin jackson and Corey Guerin, and they got a a pitching prospect in exchange for i don't even know what they gave up basically nothing the idea was that the rangers are, are taking on money from the giants and getting a prospect in return because the Giants are trying to stay under the luxury tax threshold in case they need to upgrade this uh, the second half. So mm-hmm. are we yet to the point where these trades don't require that kind of explanation? We've seen the Padres do this with Brian Mitchell and Jace Headley. They did it with Phil Hughes. The Dodgers mm-hmm. basically made a, a money trade with Matt Kemp. And the Braves, the Dodgers made that Hector Oliveira money trade before. Do people get it yet? Or how much longer <laughs> is it going to take? Because it's, it's the trade's are so far beyond just just talking about the players at this point. Yeah. Yeah, when the Dodgers-Braves trade happened over the winter, I wrote kind of an explainer-style post about it and just laid it all out. Like, this is a baseball trade that's kind of like a basketball trade, and it's not really about the players, it's about the money. I don't think the average fan really knows about the luxury tax limits and when you're going to go over and where the team is. So I don't want to be snobby, but I don't think that most people are evaluating trades that way. I think probably when they're seeing this, they're saying, oh, hey, Austin Jackson, I've heard of him. Or, you know, why didn't we get more for this guy or whatever? So 
I don't know. I think that everyone's explaining this. Like if you're just reading your local paper or whatever, you're going to figure out what the point was. So we're probably getting there, but I don't think most people are already at the point where they understand necessarily that there is present value and future value and prospects are worth this much because they're cost controlled and here's the luxury tax limit and here's where the team is. I think there are some subtleties there that baseball fans aren't really used to evaluating and are kind of a headache to evaluate even if you know you have to. So I think that's probably still the case. So why is it that basketball fans seem to be so comfortable with these trades. They pick it up immediately. They know exactly what's going on. And these trades are complicated, but, I mean, if they get it, no reason baseball fans can't. Well, yeah, I guess they're just more used to it. There's more of a history of that sort of thing, and there are tools that are built for that purpose, right? Like analyzing whether you're going to go over the salary cap and, you know, mid-level exceptions and all of these wonky terms that people know. And I don't know that the average fan understands them all fully, but there are people who do and can break them down. And I guess it's just a, a greater part of sports with salary caps as opposed to soft caps, which is sort of what baseball has at this point. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I guess that's all I have to say about the All-Star Game. It's a strange event that feels sort of extraneous at this point in baseball history. And the game itself is weird because you're trying to get all the players into the game, which, again, I don't think is a bad thing because it's nice for fans to see their players in this game. But it's also just it makes for kind of a disjointed contest and you never really get to appreciate anyone for very long and pitchers are coming in and out like a parade of relievers and you know usually the pitching is pretty dominant I think because of that and so it's a it's a strange experience and it's not like real baseball and it's also not all that much more exciting than real baseball anymore but it's an institution it has some promotional value some charity value I'm sure and it's not a bad thing for baseball so Don't get too worked up about snubs. Don't get too excited about guys who are in the game. Just appreciate it or ignore it for what it is. I think it's fine. It's always a little strange to me, and this happens multiple times a year when it's... I understand the Hall of Fame a little better, but you think of the the end-of-season awards, and obviously those those generate a a lot of attention, the the MVP, the Cy Young, the Rookie of the Year. And I remember when I was writing about the Mariners, the team-centric blog, Having to cover those things and, you know, writing celebratory posts when Felix Hernandez won and then writing anti-celebratory posts when he didn't. But it always felt a little weird to me. And maybe you can help me connect these these things. One of the things that my fiance doesn't quite understand about the, the nature of sports and, mm-hmm. and talking about sports when you're just hanging out with your friends or your podcast co-hosts is mm-hmm. that we're talking about these things that are happening on the field that are completely disconnected from, from us. The, their achievements have nothing to do with us. Yeah. And we celebrate when they do things that make them happy and rich. Which is kind of weird, but you know we get mm-hmm. at least we get paid for it uh, <laughs> yeah. far far less than they do. <laughs> but so when you were when you're watching your your favorite team and it's making the playoffs, it's in the playoffs, it wins the championship. You're obviously you're you're excited. You don't want to stare at it too deeply. It just takes some of the fun out of it. But it's I I understand that even when a team does really well and you are not on the team, none of us are on the team. It doesn't matter because we are here to watch your favorite team succeed. But I have understood sports for a long time. I've loved sports since I was a child. That's when most of us started. And it never seemed weird to me to root for a team of strangers to do well. But with with the year-end awards, and then I guess that's connected to the All-Star game, the individual recognition, I just have never, I've never 
cared. And mm-hmm. I could never, I could never quite figure out why, because I always told myself, well, why do I care what a, whether a stranger wins an award or or gets nominated for something or not? But then why do I care if strangers win a championship? And so I haven't mm-hmm. been able to actually reconcile the two. But have you ever given this a whole lot of thought? Well, I don't totally understand why I love sports or even whether I do, because I don't really if the sport isn't baseball for whatever reason i kind of like or respect or admire other sports but i've never followed them in nearly the same way and with baseball i think it's uh, largely the history and the stats and kind of some of the ancillary stuff that still keeps me interested in the game as well as the fact that it's part of my job but yeah i do think that more and more i have realized that it just shouldn't or doesn't matter that much what the awards say it doesn't change anything that happened on the field if you're a player and you have some financial stake in the outcome i can understand why you would care but for me personally i don't really care if so and so wins an mvp award or doesn't there are times when i think those debates are kind of a proxy for some larger philosophical debate So when it was Mike Trout versus Miguel Cabrera, for instance, before that became incredibly tiresome and we were all tired of talking about it, that was, I think, a meaningful thing, not so much because we were glorifying Trout's accomplishments as because it was like two different schools of thought. And here's why we value Trout more than Cabrera. And why don't you understand that? And here's what you're missing. And so... There was kind of a larger battle that was playing out via this semi-insignificant battle. So I think that's part of it. It's not so much about who wins or who doesn't, but what it means when someone wins or doesn't. And the frustration that you might feel because people don't agree with you or don't evaluate things the same way that you do, which maybe is not a frustration you should feel, but is a frustration that a lot of us feel. That is one of those, we'll get emails every so often and someone will be like, well, I I was having this conversation with someone at a bar. How would you explain to someone at a bar that their idea of of this sport or this player is wrong? What would you say to that person to convince them? And I think you and I have talked before about, well, just don't even bother. (laughs) Who who actually is engaging in these things? But maybe we're just very sheltered and we live in a, a barless bubble. Yes, I think that's true. All right, that was longer than I intended to spend on the All-Star game. Here's what I wanted to say about the trade deadline since we're now just a few weeks away and everyone is writing their rumors posts and here are the trade candidates and here's the likely destinations and on and on. It's a whole kind of cottage industry to itself. So Joshian made this point in a recent edition of his newsletter, and he argued that the nature of the trade deadline has changed in recent years because of the second wild card and because of the way the league, or at least the American League, is currently very stratified, we don't really talk about the trade deadline as a means of making the playoffs anymore. With very few exceptions, it's really just all about the playoffs and not getting there, but what you're going to do once you're there and strengthening your roster with October in mind. And I think this has changed to a certain extent. I don't know. I'm thinking back to past deadlines and there would be exciting races that teams would be restocking themselves for the second half of the season. And now it seems like you don't have that as much because A, teams aren't really willing to give up all that much for a rental. I think that's partly because teams are just smarter about evaluating what players are worth now and in the future. And so you're not going to give up your top prospects for two months of a guy. 
And that's part of it. It's also that in many cases, the teams that are contending are contending for a 50% chance of getting to the division series. And that's just not that great a prize. You're not going to give up that much knowing that you might be giving it up for one game that might be on the road and that will be that. So I think that, you know, Joe argued in his post that the most recent, I'll just read from it, you have to go back to 2015 to find the last time a team made a huge trade deadline deal on spec. The Blue Jays acquired Troy Tulowitzki and David Price in separate trades and ripped off a huge two months to win the AL East. The Mets dealt Michael Fulmer for UNS Cespedes on their way to stealing the NL East from the Matt Williams Nationals. Both teams, it should be said, could look at their situations in July and consider the division title rather than the wild card a realistic goal. Another thing that might be happening here is that every team has a pretty realistic outlook, I think, on its chances of making the playoffs and doing well once it's there. Because in the past, maybe you had teams that could kind of convince themselves that they were contenders when if we had had today's modern playoff odds, we would have known that their odds were like single digits or something. And technically they were in contention, but they were just so much worse that they weren't really going to make it. And now we have year-round playoff odds at Fangrass and I don't think we can really underestimate how much that's changed the way that we talk about and consume the sport because there's just no such thing as like, well, does this team have a chance this year? I mean, you can look at any point in the calendar and assess what that team's chances are with a greater degree of precision than probably any individual person can reliably produce. And so... There's really no pretending that you're a contender or convincing yourself that you are because the stats are right there and they're hard to ignore. And if you're making these franchise-altering decisions, you're going to look at that. And every team has its own version of that. And so I think teams are generally pretty realistic about where they are and what they're willing to give up. And so you do see maybe fewer ill-advised moves that made the trade deadline more fun at points in the past. We had a the company meeting on, on Monday, just on Slack, talking about upcoming trade deadline coverage and thinking about, is this going to be like a, an interesting deadline or is it not? And I'm pretty, you, you can never really know these things for sure, but unless the Mets decide they are going to trade Jacob deGrom or Noah Syndergaard, it seems like it's going to be mostly a stinker. You know, Manny Machado could go any day now, the, although the Orioles just beat the Yankees 5-4, to four, so maybe they're going to make a run for it. It's back to 36 and a half games out of first place, but... I think otherwise you you look at this part of this I think is the way that we've we've written about these things in the past so much of what gets traded around the deadline is relievers the emphasis yeah. has been on trading for relievers because of course we know relievers become so important in the playoffs you can use them almost every game you can use them for multiple innings everybody wants relievers 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 deep bullpens no starting pitchers whatever you want everything out of the bullpen and when you're talking about those things ultimately a reliever down the stretch is not going to make that much of a difference you know I know People talk about what Araldis Chapman meant to the Cubs in 2016 down the stretch, but I don't think he really did that much for them down the stretch. It was mostly about the playoffs, where actually he wasn't quite that valuable for them. That's a different conversation. So when you see a reliever moved at the deadline, you would expect a reliever over the second half, a really good one to be worth maybe one win above replacement. More realistically, you're getting like a situational guy, maybe a half win. That doesn't really matter. So inevitably, the the conversation turns into, well, here's how much more they could use him in the playoffs. Or if you trade for a good starting pitcher, mm-hmm. he, look, all of a sudden you get to the playoffs, it's a three or four man rotation. You can really lean on this guy. And so that is a lot of, of what 
gets talked about that does sort of I think maybe we do take the playoff odds a little for for granted because, of course, you look at what the situation is now. The Mariners are in great playoff position, but before the season, no one would have thought that they would be. They weren't supposed to be here. They're a little mm-hmm. a little fluky, or you can look at how the Nationals lost like 10 games of ground to some of their competition over the course of a month or even just a few weeks quite recently. These things can and do move around pretty dramatically, but ultimately, I... I do think that for front offices, there is some sort of there. There is a difference between getting the chance to play maybe as few as one playoff game and maybe as few as three, because even Mm -hmm. the old format, there was no guarantee you'd be around for long. But making a series just feels so much more worth it than making a game. Mm -hmm. So I think that is a a big change in in the mental calculus. So those teams are less inclined to make a huge blockbuster. Yeah. And there are some teams, particularly in the National League this year, that are in interesting races and could make interesting trades. Obviously, the Brewers have been connected to hitters and pitchers, and they're very much in the position where they could benefit from an extra winner three down the stretch. But I think, yeah, there's also a greater appreciation of what players are worth, I think. And there's been a lot of research on, okay, what were the moves that made the most impact at the deadline? And it's pretty rare that you can go back and say, this team made the playoffs because they traded for this guy instead of keeping that guy. Like, it's very rare that the margin of victory is so small that you can point to someone's war and say that his two wins above replacement in the second half of the season, which is not even a full half of the season, actually made the difference between that team being eliminated and making the playoffs. It just doesn't happen that often. And so on the one hand, I guess the players you acquire can make a greater impact because I think there's a greater recognition that you should manage a little bit differently in the postseason than you do in regular season. And you can ride your starters and your relievers harder and you can concentrate more of your innings in their hands. And so there is a bigger benefit to having Enroldis Chapman or Andrew Miller if you were going to use that Andrew Miller for many innings in the playoffs. So there's something to be said for that. But particularly right now, and again, I don't think that the league as it's currently constructed and the standings the way they are today, I don't think that's a permanent state of affairs. I think we're in a bit of a blip here where a bunch of teams were rebuilding at the same time, and so it's strange, and you have great teams and terrible teams, but that's not going to be a permanent condition. So for right now, you just, in the AL, it's like any team that's going to be a buyer is basically guaranteed to be a playoff team at this point. So you really have to look to the NL for any kind of interesting trade that could actually swing a race in the second half of the season. It will be interesting to see how much teams care about trying to avoid that wildcard game because in the American League, I don't think either one of us believes the Mariners will actually push the Astros, but you do have the Red Sox and Yankees who are tight at the top yep. of their division. One of those teams will win the wildcard game. Now you you look at, go, go to the wildcard game, you look at the National League and all three divisions are tight. The Dodgers right now are one game back of the Diamondbacks. The, the Cubs are a game and a half back of the Brewers. The Braves and Phillies are tied with the Nationals lurking five behind. So all there are, there are a number of teams in there who maybe they're not going to look to make a trade because they're trying to make the playoffs and and that's what their their focus is on I think 
well, let me walk that back. Of course, they're all going to make a trade trying to make the playoffs. All of them mm-hmm. are in somewhat vulnerable spots. But also, it's not just about making the playoffs, but about avoiding that call it coin flip game. Even if you have an ace starting pitcher, maybe it's a 60-40 kind of game where, you know, you think, were the 2017 Twins a success? Were the 2017 Rockies a success? I don't know how the fans really feel about having made it ever so briefly put up a quick fight the twins had a three-run lead once it lasted about three batters and that was it (laughs) and then from that point forward it was a twins yankees game in new york you knew it was over so i don't know how that feels but it's so abrupt no single team want if you make the playoffs there's a difference i think but maybe this is where the calculus is you make the playoffs right now as a wild card you have a game and it's for half the teams it's on the road if you make a series you know you're going to have at least one playoff home game and maybe that's what does it you just want to be mm-hmm. able to give that to the fans and yeah. maybe i don't think the mariners for example are in position to make a big splash but if they could do anything to get ahead of the astros then they could say well at least this way we don't have to go through chris sale or louis severino in fenway or mm-hmm. or yankee stadium so mm-hmm. it will as as little talent as there is available right now it seems like at the deadline it's going to be interesting to see what the teams fighting for first place do because they are strongly incentivized to do something and you know jay happ is not nearly as interesting as he was made out to be in april so whatever there josh Donaldson is gone and zach Britton hasn't looked very good but we know manny machado's there we know brad hand is there i just wrote about nathan yovaldi who i think has made himself really really interesting and went merrifield if he's available that's a it's a quiet one, not but an there's all-star. <laughs> not even all star. How did they not make? For, uh, I, don't, I don't care. You, I I can't tell if I would have thought Whit Merrifield would have like more player support than the fan recognition because you know as a player yeah, you think like oh that guy's just always yeah he's always yeah. in the middle of everything or whatever yeah. Right. Yeah. Didn't you say in your chat last week, am I imagining this, that Machado maybe is one of the best players ever to be available at a deadline? Yeah. Yeah. So you have this contrast between like the ultimate prize and then maybe kind of a a weak rest of the class. I think that there have been really good rental pitchers. I mean, we just talked to Randy Johnson. Randy Johnson was an excellent Mm -hmm. rental pitcher when he was available. But as far as rental position players are concerned, I can't think... Now, this isn't just my idea. I think Ken Rosenthal wrote about this like a month ago, but he couldn't. I can't think of a a better position player who was moved in the middle of the year. J.D. Martinez was a really, really great hitter, but obviously he has flaws. And mm-hmm. Machado's probably like a six or seven win player. I don't know exactly where he is right now. 3.2 half the season. That makes sense. Six win player, Manny Machado. And who... Yep. Who like this has ever been moved in the middle of the year when he's a rental? And I don't know. I think this is one of the reasons why the Orioles are having so much trouble finding a, a trading partner because no one really knows what the right price is. I would assume mm-hmm. the Orioles' idea is a little too high and uh, <laughs> it'll eventually become more realistic. But and I could be wrong, but I, I can't think of anything. I can't think of a single player who's been this good and moved. Yeah, I haven't thought about it a lot, but offhand, I don't know. But you mentioned J.D. Martinez, and last year, of course, when he was traded from the Tigers to the Diamondbacks, he didn't bring back much. And I think, you know, if teams had known that he would increase his production in the second half of last year and be... Was he the best hitter in baseball in the second half of last year? I mean, probably. If he wasn't, he had to be very close. He hit 29 homers after that trade, and even despite his lack of defense and base running, he was still worth a couple wins. So if you could have guaranteed that he would be worth that, maybe he would have brought back more 
but Machado, better player than that, but still same principle applies in that he's about to be a free agent and there are only so many teams that I think benefit from him hugely in that lots of teams are locked into playoff spots more or less already. So I don't want to put anything past the Orioles because the fact that they've held on to him this long is almost incomprehensible. I mean, they should have dealt him long before the Orioles turned into one of the worst teams ever. You can kind of understand how it happened, but not approve of how it happened. There's no way that they actually hold on to him for the rest of this year, is it? I mean, on the one hand, maybe the qualifying offer and the compensation you get is not that much worse than what you get from him at the deadline, but it's got to be sort of worse. And, geez, just like mercy rule, let him go somewhere <laughs> and win. This is just bleak. It's Yeah, I uh, I don't know. I was trying to think of, uh, of another example position player who got moved at the deadline, but I can't think of a single... The compensation, uh, do we really need to even have this conversation? I mean, of course the compensation is worse than what you get in a trade. There's absolutely no question. Uh, Machado would, I don't know if he'd be furious. I don't know if that's the right word, but there's, <laughs> I, he would not feel good about it. He would have a horrible taste in his mouth, probably would slump down the stretch because he doesn't really want to play for the Orioles. What's he playing mm-hmm. for? He's already done enough in the first half. I, the, the best example, switching gears a little bit, I, I had forgotten that after 2015, Yuan Cespedes became a free agent, and he was, of course, traded in the, in the middle of that year from the Tigers to yeah. the Mets. Maybe that's the best recent example because he could also play defense then. He was mm-hmm. traded from the Tigers with a war of 3.3 over the second half, quote-unquote, with the Mets. He was worth 2.6. So he was a six-win player in 2015, and he was traded for Luis Sessa and Michael Fulmer, two major league caliber starting pitchers, one of them a very good starting pitcher. So that would make sense as some sort of model here. Machado is a different kind of player. He's a younger player, but same kind of rental. Uh, Cespedes was not yet injury prone at that point. So there's there's something there that supports the prevailing idea I've had that Machado will get moved for two young starting pitchers. Look mm-hmm. for something like that. But I mean, I, I have you been reading any of these, these follow-up articles about the current state of the Orioles front office? Because it's really... <laughs> depressing isn't the right word, but it's so bad and complicated. Yeah, a little bit. I think, what, for the umpteenth year in a row, they refused to sign, declined to sign an international amateur free agent yet again, as they do every year. It's really their own fault that they don't have more young talent than they do if they're not going to make any effort to acquire that talent. So, yeah, it uh, doesn't sound like a good situation. I mean, there's... Brady Anderson is kind of in charge, but Dan Duquette is in charge, except the Angelos family is in charge, but it's not necessarily always Peter. And then Buck Showalter kind of wants to be a GM, but he's also a manager who might be on the out. So I just can't imagine what it's like to be trying to trade with this team. Although I should say that there was a tweet last week that said, so far, like this trade deadline, the Orioles have seemed more focused than usual, which is kind of a backhanded compliment, I guess. But it also at least means that Orioles have known they were going to be sellers of the deadline for about two and a half months so maybe they've Mm -hmm. just had more time to get their heads on straight yeah and there were reports that they wanted to trade him early to get more value back and at this point that ship has already sailed i don't want to bring up our ship and sailing debate from last week again but it's uh already almost mid-july here so you're not really gonna get more value for manny machado than you would trading him at the actual deadline right now so They've kind of dragged their feet, I guess, or, you know, maybe teams have been slow submitting offers. I don't know, but it would be really, I mean, almost unforgivable if they don't deal him somewhere because there's plenty of interest. you got to get something. You've got to kickstart 
this rebuild. I I know that they've had unrealistic expectations and evaluations in the past and probably still do. And I know that when you're trading a homegrown guy who's been the face of the franchise and as good as Machado has been, you don't just want to deal him for like a couple I don't know, A-ball pitchers no one's ever heard of who might not ever make it. You want something concrete to show for that trade, but I think fans are smart enough now to understand that you have to make these kind of painful moves sometimes if you want to compete, and I don't think any Orioles fans are really enjoying Orioles baseball right now with Manny Machado, so I don't know that there's all that much of a difference really with or without him. Remember when you wrote your article about eliminating pitchers batting and introducing the universal <laughs> DH and you said how strange yes. it was to write with an opinion and uh, <laughs> and and I agree because it, it's so uncommon to be able to take a, a hard stance and mm-hmm. I think that we can both say that if the Orioles fail to trade Manny Machado and Manny Machado mm-hmm. is not on the disabled list with a nasty case of death or paralysis as yeah. of tomorrow, then you and I will both be in position to write very opinionated articles about how the Orioles have done something ever so clearly wrong. Because there, like yes. you said, there is no excuse. There's none at all. Yeah. All right. So we'll be talking about specific moves and rumors and returns in the coming weeks. But we have set the scene. Consider this your trade deadline primer, I suppose. And we'll get into the specifics in the rest of this month. So Guess we can leave it there. I said that we were not going to talk about Williams Estadio today, but I received a tweet while we were recording this podcast from Derek Wetmore, who works for an ESPN radio station, and he said that I would appreciate knowing that Williams Estadio put a couple balls in the third deck during batting practice at Target Field today. No kidding. So Estadio flashing his newfound power potential. To which side of the field? <laughs> that I don't know. Estadio so far... 14 plate appearances. He's only batted, well, zero times since July 3rd. Hasn't started, hasn't pinched it. But still, no walks, no (laughs) strikeouts. Yes. Yeah, I'm fine with him just kind of being on the bench for the rest of the season. As long as that fact is preserved that he has no strikeouts and no walks, that's all right. (laughs) And I apologize to any all-star snubs I snubbed in this episode by not even mentioning that they were snubbed because I know that there were some. James Paxton, snubbed. Nick Castellanos, snubbed. Anamadovino, snubbed. Many more snubs. Jesus Aguilar, snubbed. I don't know. Lots of snubs out there, but many won't be snubs. How often do you use the word snub under any <laughs> other circumstance? no other context. Yeah. Right? <laughs> this, is, this is pretty much it. Hall of Fame snubs, award snubs, all-star snubs. Pretty much the only snub that I will utter in the course of a year. Yeah, it's like copious. I only ever hear copious when people are talking about like copious amounts of alcohol. It's never like yes. I, I went to the grocery store and picked up copious apples. It's just always like one. I don't know how those things get stuck. But anyway, the, I, everybody, if you're out there, here's your, your homework for Tuesday. Use the word snub in some other context and make it work. Yeah. Let yeah. us know. Or don't. Record I don't care. Copious podcasts. Oh, one more thing I wanted to mention. My wife went bouldering this weekend. Which I know, yeah, that's uh, something you do regularly. And I was not able to accompany her this time, but I would like to because she really enjoyed it and it sounded fun. But she came back with her fingers looking like Rich Hill after a 60% curveball day. (laughs) It's like skin is all over the place. It looks very painful. Is there a way around this or is this just one of those things where you have to punish yourself repeatedly until you build up some resistance? Did she go indoor or outdoor bouldering? Indoor. 
We don't have okay. outdoors here. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's there's the huge boulder in Central Park. I'm given to understand. Yeah, yeah. True. Has she ever done this before? No. Okay. How often does she use her hands for any sort of like exercise or something beyond? <laughs> what does she do? Like manual labor, ever? Uh, yeah, she. I mean, she goes to the gym and she lifts things, mm-hmm. but. Uh, I don't know that she has done that enough to build up calluses. I uh-huh. I have calluses that I hope would protect me in this situation, but it was still kind of intimidating to look at her hands and uh, <laughs> think about whether I would suffer the same fate because I, I definitely want to do this. Now, are we talking about like the fingers near the base or in the palm or like the fingertips? It kind of looked like everywhere. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. So it does, it does uh, get better. Now, it, look, you're... When when I come back from from the bouldering gym and I I go a, a few times a week so I have like disgusting hands except the skin is mostly together they're just like mm-hmm. unpleasant to look at you know yeah. but I'll come back with like aching hands and some calluses rip off but mostly for me it's like the, my legs just end up covered in bruises from collisions <laughs> I don't even remember which mm. is fine because I'm I mostly wear long pants I'm not a shorts kind of guy in part because of the bruises but it's <laughs> it is it is a very fun exercise it is the the reason I find it so appealing is it's like the first upper body exercise I've ever found that I enjoy uh-huh. so it's it's like mentally thera- therapeutic but also fun working out but it is objectively a stupid thing to do to your body people just get hurt all the time yeah she was telling me about how you had told her that there's almost a puzzle element to it and that yeah. you have to figure out how to climb and where your next handhold or foothold is going to be and she said she enjoyed that so i look forward to it both for that and for the exercise but i i hope that i've built up enough calluses that i won't come back looking like that because uh <laughs> it looked pretty painful are climbing gloves a thing or does that preclude your actually getting a grip on something yeah no no gloves uh, generally you'll see tape people will tape up their hands or fingers if they get wounded but you uh-huh. just kind of climb through it or huh. if you're not competing you don't and you just give yourself time to heal because at the end of the day who are we trying to impress yeah i need my hands this is my livelihood i have to type <laughs> no no no. you can t- i have never i've never been a hurt my fingers so much bouldering that I haven't been able to type it just kind of like and you know the bleeding the bleeding stops at the gym Mm -hmm. you know it's like if you're if you (laughs) if you're bleeding at the gym and it's still bleeding when you're home you have a different disease that you might want to address but yeah yeah, it's uh, you kind of look mangled but the the, for me the pain has never been has never been like oh I can't press a keyboard it's more like oh it's hard to open jars okay all right well I will boulder and I'll report back I look forward to hearing about it Update on the Jacob deGrom wins watch, following yet another excellent but winless start this weekend. Five old school wins, 5.4 wins above replacement. He's still doing it. So that will do it for today. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. All of our Patreon supporters are all-stars. To me, no snubs here. Following five people have already pledged their support by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild and signing up to pledge some small monthly amount. Hey, look who's at the top of the list here. The aforementioned Joe Sheehan of the Joe Sheehan Newsletter, also a Patreon supporter of ours. Go subscribe to his newsletter. Also, Dan Osterhout, Jeremy Bernfeld, James Smith, and Frederick Hines. Thanks to all of you. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance as always. Please keep your questions and comments coming for me and Jeff via podcast at fangrass.com or the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. We will likely answer your questions next time. Thanks for listening and we will talk to you soon. I will ask of the stars and the sky. 